Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, where we bring you weekly conversations with purpose-driven leaders. Our focus is to share meaningful conversations with purpose-driven people having a big social impact in our community. Our mission is to enable you to listen, connect, and grow. You can learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au. We're also very judging of performance. Almost, if I could be critical of of us, we expect action and results incredibly quickly. So, for example, in our data, we often see when you get new political leaders come in, you get a little bit of bounce in trust in, in government. And we certainly saw that when Turnbull came to power. I mean, there was a wave of optimism that he was going to be a different type of leader. Mm-hmm. We got a bit of a bounce. I think it was about uh, six points. Mm-hmm. And then within six months, it had completely gone. Welcome back to the podcast. And it is great to be back with you as always. Well, what did you think of our live link up via Skype to Mauritius last week? I thought it went pretty well and actually filled me with confidence that we might be able to do a couple more remote sessions uh, where our guests are interstate or overseas and perhaps pull some interesting big names in. So that was exciting for me. Well, today I've got a treat for you. Um, I sat down with Stephen Spur, who is the CEO of Edelman Australia. Edelman are a communications and PR organisation who do the annual trust barometer. And this is one of the most important documents in Australia and globally that talks about consumer confidence and trust of all kinds of stakeholders in a range of institutions, including government, media, um, not-for-profits, businesses and alike. Stephen was an absolutely delightful guest and was quite self-conscious about having a cold and the sniffles, but being this time of year, he need not be, and um, I don't think it affected his performance at all. He was terrific, and um, this is a really interesting conversation where we talk about all kinds of things. Um, we talk about uh, millennial attitudes to businesses, brands, uh, the differences in trust between current employers and other potential employers. We talk about the low trust in government and media. Um, the, the growing trust in not-for-profits. So it's a really interesting chat. Um, I do urge you to stick around until the end. If you missed it, be sure to check out our conversation last week with our, our current sponsors, Mountains and Marathons, and their star founders, uh, Jamin and Jen. This is a great chat, and I certainly learned a lot myself about um, what it must feel like to not know whether you're capable of completing a, a massive personal and professional growth journey, and then conclude that by completing a marathon or several marathons. So that's part of what this experience is all about at Mountains to Marathons as part of their six-month program. You'll be paired with um, international experts in nutrition, sports, um, personal coaching. Uh, you'll, you'll measure your progress along the way, and you'll culminate by smashing through some barriers that you just thought were not possible before that has led a lot of participants to therefore um, smash through their own personal and professional barriers and excel in their own life after completing the programs. And you can check out those testimonials too, which I urge you to do because they're, um, they're compelling. So to learn more about that program and the, the upcoming Honolulu Marathon Leadership Program, just click through the link in our show notes and that'll take you to a form where you can, uh, in that form, just type in that you heard about the program through Humans of Purpose and as an exclusive to our listeners, they will pay for your flights to and from Hawaii. So pretty exceptional opportunity there to get you kick-started on your own personal uh, and professional leadership journey. So do hit that link in the show notes. And uh, if you want to learn more via your browser, just head to mountainsandmarathons.world slash Honolulu, and you'll see the inquiry form down the bottom. As always, I want to send a special thank you and shout out to our, our Patreon supporters, Misha D and wife, Joel F, Stuart M and McCartan. Your ongoing support uh, each month has been tremendous for humans of purpose and helps us grow and perform each and every week. Now, I'd love if you'd also consider joining that community and becoming a Patreon supporter of Humans of Purpose. And by doing so, you'll be sending me a message that you enjoy the content each week, you value the work that I do, you love our curated lineup of guests, and you're really happy that I'm putting in a day plus to produce this wonderful content um, for the benefit of our community. Now, um, in doing so, what you'll essentially do is shower me a notional monthly $4 coffee, and in exchange for that, I will uh, shower you with the following rewards. 
priority access to podcast guest and partner brand offers, giveaways, and comps. You'll have a chance to recommend future guests and key themes you'd like explored in the podcast. You'll be recognized and thanked in every podcast and show notes. And you'll also have exclusive access to our first 75 episodes of Humans of Purpose from our vault, which is 2017 to mid-2018. To take up this great opportunity to further be involved in the community and to shape the future of the podcast, just head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose slash join or click the link in our show notes. So welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Great to have you. Yeah, good. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I've been excited to talk to you for a long time. The Edelman Trust Barometer is a constant in my life. It uh, keeps popping up and it's always a point of great discussion and intrigue. Maybe let's start with going back in time a bit and learning about you and your origin story. Oh, well, how far do we want to go back? I suppose, I got, why, why not go back to the beginning, right to the beginning? So I am the child of a very young set of parents, teenage parents, and I was born um, on a commission housing estate in, in the UK. Uh, subsequently, uh, lots of things happened in my life. And I suppose the couple of pivotal things that led me to where I am is my mum had a really serious road traffic accident when I was about 10. And so I spent that the next year when she was in hospital being bounced around various relatives, which made me quite robust as mm. a child and quite independent. Um, and also when we were finally reunited, quite attached to my mum. Uh, from there, we went on a really great journey together because at that, by that point, my father had, had, uh, left. And yeah, we had, uh, I suppose now looking back on it, quite an amazing set of experiences. My mum went back to school, then, uh, higher education and then went to university and she became a doctor of psychology. And that really repivoted my whole life towards education myself. Mm. And I had the great privilege of going to, uh, the London School of Economics. Mm. I studied economics, uh, like the majority of the students that go there, not all of them. Um, it's the school of economics. It is, the, it is the school of economics. <laughs> it's the place to be. And uh, I learned so much about life. It's, a, it's At that time, it was the most international of all of the uh, British universities, had a very diverse student body. And from that, I just learned so much about the world that I just wasn't aware of. And I also, um, particularly one of my favorite courses was, um, uh, economics of the welfare state. I had been brought up on the welfare state. I had benefited from it. Um, and then was able to really study the, the economics of it and understand the cost of, uh, of living in a social system that looks after the less advantaged. So it's probably the second mm. pivotal, pivotal thing that happened to me. And that really affected my worldview. Uh, and then I, uh, have, I started to do what many people of that age did. I went traveling. I went to see various bits of the world. And then finally, uh, started, uh, got a job, had a few small gigs. And then, um, I started at Edelman. 21 years ago. I was going to say, uh, when I, when I um, checked in on your LinkedIn profile and saw the, uh, the the one career experience, I'm like, this guy is amazing. He's been at Edelman 21 years. I know. And I, when I say it, it, A, makes me feel very old. Um, <laughs> and B, I'm kind of surprised myself because it doesn't feel like uh, I have been in one place because the organization and my role has changed so dramatically over yeah. time. And I suppose when you're um, at a great organization like that, that's growing, going global and doing a number of things, um, there'd be so many changes in role and opportunities to develop and grow. Yeah. And I've been very fortunate. I've had uh, short placements and long placements in multiple countries. I've had clients in multiple countries. So it meant that it was always changing and morphing. Um, and then four years ago, well, three and a half years ago, I got offered the opportunity to come out and lead the Australian uh, operation, which I think was perfectly timed in my life. I think if I'd left it much later, I would have been pipe and slippers at home. Um, and so I thought, <laughs> let's not let's not age myself prematurely. And uh, uh, we took the leap, and it's been a fantastic experience. You must have great trust in your employer. Well, you know, if you don't have trust, then you don't have advocacy, and I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> now, the Edelman um, journey is fascinating. I mean, a lot of people here would know Edelman from the, the trust project. Maybe talk a little bit about the inception of that project, how it came about, mm. and what it's turned into today. 
So I think, uh, and a lot of people probably aren't aware of this, this goes all the way back. I mean, we've been doing the trust problem for 19 years. So if we take ourselves back to uh, 1999, uh, that which is when the first of the barometers was actually thought about, conceived of, and put into, into field work, uh, well, it was it was born of the uh, World Trade Organization's uh, meeting in Seattle in 1999, and what turned into the Battle of Seattle with protests around what was going on in the global economy. Uh, that drove um, uh, Edelman leadership and Richard Edelman, our global CEO in particular, to think about: Was this a changing dynamic? in capitalism mm. and do we really understand what's going on in the minds of the everyday population um and that it was the origin of the trust barometer it's matured obviously in the 19 years that have followed it's now a very large study 27 countries 33,000 people uh it's a huge undertaking and what's great about it is we both track stuff that we asked all the way back in 99 and then we also um, ha- add new uh, f- new questions, new areas to research as things move and evolve. And ultimately, as you can imagine, different trends and themes have emerged in that mm. time, and we've had chance to explore them every- as they as they evolve, which has been fantastic. As somebody who's sort of looked at our economy, our social economy, our political economy, and studied that, and um, you know from the, from the origin back in, in 1999, the battle for Seattle, do you think the circumstances? Um, a similar now what what's changed in terms of um, the world its shape and do we still have that kind of social unrest about the forces of capitalism the forces of the economy and its impact on people and the least advantaged i think that there's something that is materially different i we kind of went into a little bit of a i don't know how to say it maybe a cave of of things i think protests went down general Although the dissatisfaction, I think, with the externalities of capitalism got diminished. It really was in student protests and a few other areas. Mm-hmm. I think we went through quite a few peri- a few years, a decent length of period, where it wasn't really hitting in the public consciousness mm-hmm. more broadly. Mm-hmm. And something happened around... I think it probably had origins in the GFC, but really started to bubble up in our data about three to four years ago, Mm. where people were just getting less and less satisfied with the institutions that govern our life. Mm. Now, whether that means they're dissatisfied with capitalism, I don't know, but I can tell you that people are not happy with the way the institutions sitting in their swim lanes Mm. only looking after their their sort of patch of grass that isn't working Mm. for pretty much everyone um demographically we have quite an interesting mix in the study it's representative of all of the uh, each country that we're in so here in australia it's fully demographically representative uh, and we find that it's quite interesting. You have a sort of older population that are quite distrusting. Uh, we look at it in 55 and older. Um, and you have a younger population that are slightly distrusting. So we're all in much the same place, but the reasons behind it are often quite different. And the uh, and the solutions that the, those people are asking for are quite different. I'd love to hear a bit more about that. So what, do you, what are the main um, reasons for young people versus old people to be distrusting? So young people want more social action from business. They want more... Um, purpose-led activities Mm -hmm. they want to they want to work in a place where not only can they you know hopefully make money and and earn a a living but they know that they're doing good and they're not causing to use an economic term again an externality in in the business that they're doing or if where they do work does cause an externality that it actually sorts that out as best it can as well the older population uh that's the 55 plus and i'm Got to stop calling them older population because I'm yeah, rapidly entering I'm the age group I, myself. It's my fault. I, I, I move away and I uh, apologise for young versus old. What I meant is uh, <laughs> yeah. below 55 and older. Yeah. Yep. So 55 plus, it's much more about the here and now and the quality of life right now. It's about cost of, cost of living. It's about worrying about um, pen, uh, soup, super and will that super support their lifestyle? Uh, obviously in the rest of the world, that's the pension system. Mm. And I think it's because it's a little bit more me based mm. the later in life our, our set is. Yes. 
but it's not enormously different in in like in raw data it doesn't look that different but when you dig into it it's a it's a little more different and then you've got my generation in the middle the gen x's and we over the last few years have really moved dramatically towards the millennial and gen z mm. uh, viewpoints um rather than the millennial population maturing yep. into the gen x viewpoint so that's an interesting piece of um data that you don't often see is really there's quite a big difference between the 55 plus mm. population mm. and everybody else mm. now there's not a perfect line that you step over at 55 obviously it, it's more subtle than that but there is definitively a difference in the data do you see anything interesting with the, the new millennials or the gen z versus millennials or do you see it as sort of like the same kind of cluster no, we totally see it differently. The data is quite different, but um, we've only got about five years of them in five years of that cohort in the study. But what it um, appears is that they are even deeper into calls related. They're probably less capitalist minded mm. than the millennial group. But again, until we've got more than five years and until there's, they're more deeply in the working population, it's hard to tell mm. how distinctly different mm. they are. It's very interesting. I've heard them characterised as more extreme millennials. Yes. Uh, but not not radically different, just more um, interested mm. in the same sorts of things that millennials are interested, which actually takes me to that piece around, you know, purpose-driven business, the social um, economy and, um, you know, uh, people wanting more from their jobs or their work than just the work itself. You know, what is the impact of the work? What changes are creating in society? Um, how is it, you know, leading to, to more good? So um, I'm fascinated at how does trust sort of play mm. into that paradigm? I think there's two there's two ways to come at that question. Yep. And I think, first of all, you still have to prove that having trust in your employer is worth, worth it to yep. some people. And what we find here in Australia is that for those of us that trust our employer versus those that don't, there's a 40% advantage in advocacy. Mm. So if you and I both work at the same place, but I don't trust and you do, your your advocacy quotient is 40% higher or you're yeah. 40% more likely to advocate. Um, it's also you're 40% more loyal uh, and 32% more engaged. Mm. Now, interestingly, these are on the low side globally. Mm. Globally, these numbers tend to be in the 50s rather than in the 40s. So A, we're, we're always a little bit more judgy here in mm. australia so that's that, that, that critical reason that's slightly critical yep. uh, point of view and you know let's not get too carried away but um where it does really show what the value of a trusted a trusting employee base comes in is almost the other way around when what do the employees expect of the companies they work in what yep. drives that trust and that loyalty well, you won't be surprised that it's about 80% of us uh, expect decent job opportunities, mm. career growth, and all those things, which I suppose is the sort of um, having a job is base level. The next is having job opportunities. And at that level, 80% of us are looking for that in our in our role, which means about 20% of people really are just doing their job to earn the money mm. and they don't really care what they do. Mm. Then it becomes to personal empowerment. And that is 75% of us want to have a sense of personal empowerment at work. And that's being able to be part of the decision-making process, the planning process, mm. uh, having a point of view the way the company goes. Um, so it's not much different. 79% of us want a decent career opportunity and 75% of us want empowerment. And then at the top of this sort of uh, uh, hi hierarchy is shared action that I can actually actively make an impact in the world by working here that it does its cause is good that i believe in its purpose i believe it has a meaningful impact on society mm. and 65 percent of us are already looking for that in our employer which mm. i think is, is a rapid rise in in that type of mentality <clears throat> excuse me over a short number of years and I think when you look at just the millennial population, those numbers are about 10 points high, about 75%. So almost the same who want the career opportunity, want the shared action, mm. which is a pretty fascinating change. And I think as you talked about Gen Z, mm. I think as they come in to be a bigger part of the population, these numbers will only get higher. And it's interesting to talk about because I think some of the data as well that you showed me earlier about um, people in those organisations expecting the CEOs to take the lead on social change. So it's got to that point where it's a bit beyond kind of just talking about 
doing the change. When the CEO is making announcements about change or internally the company, you're going to see action. Uh, action will probably most likely follow. Um, are we more sceptical or do is it more important that we see action following words now? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think the era of, and it probably was the 90s and the early noughties, where you could say the right thing but not really do that much. Um, and somehow you got through that has well and truly gone and in fact it's not just say and act I think it's act then say Mm. is really what's rewarded Mm. I want to I don't mind that you're on your journey to be better but at least have done something don't just declare it and then and then and expect to be lauded for starting something beyond the journey and then we'll get but we'll get behind you I wonder whether that's a bit the internet or the, you know, the prevalence of um, social media. Uh, we're not in a vacuum anymore when we talk. It used to be, you know, you're on TV, you're on radio, you mm-hmm. can just say things and, you know, no one would know if you're backing up with action. But now um, that kind of the time lapse between saying something in action is so short. And not only, absolutely, not only is it short, we're also very judging mm-hmm. of performance. Almost if I could be critical of, of us, we expect action and results quick, incredibly quickly. Yep. So, for example, in our data, we often see when you get new political leaders come in, you get a little bit of bounce in mm. trust in, mm. in government. And we certainly saw that when Turnbull came to power. Mm. I mean, there was a wave of optimism that he was going to be a different type of leader. Mm. We got a bit of a bounce. I think it was about uh, six points. Mm. And then within six months, it had completely gone. Yep. You got very little time to get runs on the board once you've made your big puffy statements. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so hence why I'm saying I think if I if I if I give advice, you want to be on the journey before you even announce that you're thinking of doing something. Yep. Because you're going to be judged on whether it worked or not mm. incredibly quickly and quicker than it would feasibly be possible mm. to deliver on it. That's interesting. Another thing that I thought was sort of fascinating, it ties into your point earlier about um, how much we trust our own employees is how little we trust other businesses by comparison. Because that's kind of funny because it's kind of like uh, my place is the best. I'm going to stay here. It's it's amazing. But we still see, you know, two or three years, every two or three years, people change jobs. So for, for that whole time, it's like they're not trusting any other potential <laughs> employer. You know, it is quite interesting. Our view of business is vastly different from our view of our own employer if yeah. we're working in the commercial sector. Yeah. Of course, your employer might be also in the government sector as well. Um, and the same occurs there. So trust in the employer is uh, 77 points, which is pretty much the peak of trust that you would want. But when you go above that, you're mm. kind of getting into blind trust yeah. territory and you yep. still want a questioning and querying employee base mm. so that things improve and get better. Yep. Um, but our trust in the other uh, institutions is much, much lower. And I think you, if we look at the whole general population, trust in business as a whole is just 52%. Mm. So it's a 25% difference yep. between trust in business and trust in our employer, yep. which is huge. Yeah. It's like me walking down the street and saying, um, all of these businesses just want my money. They don't, mm. you know, they're not trustworthy. But when I go to work, oh, this business is totally yeah. different. This is an awesome business. Yeah. And that's what I think it's about. It's about two things about information. You've got more inside information. Mm. You can see the mechanics of the organization. Uh, You spend a lot of time there, Mm. but really what drives trust today, and we haven't even got even started talking Mm. about this is community. Um, It used to be, we trusted hierarchy, top down, Mm. you know, authority, authority, the professors, the politicians, the doctors. Then it moved to uh, not as strongly here, but um, especially in the rest of the world, peer to peer sources. So you you know your mates, the person like you that you you met and yep. and what they thought. Yep. But now it's really a combination of the two. So it's community. So it's a mixture of people like you in your community mm. and experts and authority figures in your community that yep. you trust is the sort of holy circle yeah um and and therefore when you think about your employer your employer firmly sits in your community because you spend so much time there every day and you have so much knowledge about them i actually feel like whereas we're evolving in a lot of areas uh we're devolving a bit in terms of um trust of people uh i imagine that it's a bit like um as early stage uh neanderthals sort of like saying who's the best hunter in the village you know can you um connect me with them and now when, when we operate sort of as people it's like I trust you, therefore I can trust someone that you recommend to me. 
There's that, but that's like a very primal, uh, early stage human thing. But I think I, I'm not sure why we're back there. And I think it is actually a really nice thing that I, I can say, okay, I've met Stephen. He's met me. Mm-hmm. We got along well. Uh, we, we have a baseline of trust. If Stephen asks me to recommend somebody, he, he may ask me to recommend somebody in my space. He can then trust that the person I give back to him is trustworthy. And that's kind of like maybe a bit in opposition to, um, how it was, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Here's a directory of trusted people. Mm-hmm. Just pick one. Yeah. I think that sort of authority and trust from status yep. has just disappeared. Yep. And, you know, we're not, we, you know, we, we, love a t- we love a tall poppy moment here in Australia anyway. So mm. we were quick to cut though that type of behavior down. And therefore it does come back to mateship. And it does come back to your own network because your network in some ways roots out the distrust, the the people to distrust quite quickly because over time the recommendation, the mm. connection won't happen. But um, we're not alone in this. Other countries are doing it too, but we've definitely sort of come to this community place mm. pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I think there's a, <coughs> there's a power in community. And I, I think the sort of the the more advanced we get, I think we yearn for, for that kind of personal connection. And uh, I'm curious to sort of tie this a bit back to your findings in social media, because I think that, yeah. you know, a new way that people search for community in a time poor tech rich society is by jumping on Twitter, it's Instagram, it's, you know, um, for the younger type Snapchat and whatnot. Um, how is that going for us? And where do we find ourselves vis-a-vis trust? So this has been a really interesting road, I think, trust in media type. So obviously our trust in media as an institution is quite low in Australia compared to many parts of the world. Mm -hmm. It's equivalently in the space of um, France and uh, the UK and Germany. Mm -hmm. But when you break down the subs of media trust, you see a quite different, um, a quite different amount of... uh, trust levels per media type. So let me make this easier by bringing some stats to the occasion. So 61% of um, us trust traditional media sources. That's the same as last year. But for the few years before that, it was pretty low. And it was low because we had sort of moved to social. We Mm -hmm. decided social was the way forward and traditional was sort of on a decline. Yep. When Cambridge Analytica happened and some of the Facebook challenges that came out of that happened, we started moving much more towards anchoring ourselves to traditional media sources when in doubt. And now we have a huge amount of people source and fact checking to make sure if something they see on social, if they, if they're not quite sure if it's true or not, they will go and look at a traditional news source, which is weirdly. So the revolution of social media has created a space for traditional media to be an anchor of, of trust. Uh, social media uh, um, trust in Australia is 26 points. It is um, low. Mm. That's incredibly mm. low. In fact, it's the lowest in the world, jointly, oh, well. jointly with France. Yep. And, but it doesn't mean that we're not using it for news. Mm. Nearly two-thirds of us use it as our main source of news. Yep. So we've got to hold that dichotomy. We don't. About two-thirds of us don't trust it, yet two-thirds of us are also um, using it for uh, our main source. So we've got this really interesting dynamic. Mm. And, of course, to solve that dynamic, if we, as to use a British term, if we smell a rat, we will go and um, check it out in a traditional source to make it true. But if two-thirds of us are doing that, that means a third of us are not, and a third of us are believing what we see on social. Mm. And therefore, at least a third of us are in a media bubble where we only are self-referring and living in our own news circle, and we're not necessarily checking outside sources. I think, ironically, what social has done is it's made the diversity of information theoretically broader, and we could all be so much more educated on how different segments of society think and feel. But weirdly, that glut of information Mm. makes our diet actually less um, robust because Mm. we're actually uh, just uh, informing ourselves from a few restricted sources, often that already have the views that we have. So it's self-referential, it's self-reinforcing, and it doesn't enrich your diet of information. It's kind of a hard choice in a lot of ways because you've got the choice of um, going to news sites news uh, outlets, Fairfax, whatnot, Wall Street Journal, Mm. uh, New York Times, and sort of reading what they put up there. Um, 
but now we know that they design and choose very much what they want to put up there in certain ways. We might trust that the information is better reported or more accurate. We have a choice between that or now that all these organisations have been forced into the social media gamut as well because no one's going to their sites organically. So you can then, you have to put your trust in Twitter or, uh, you know, Facebook or some of these behemoth companies to steer you the right way. But now we know that their algorithms are sort of, you know, cherry picking a lot of things and um, accelerating fake news and maybe, you know, not giving us the right coverage. So we've got a complex um, matrix of choices to make. Oh, it's incredibly Mm. complex. And I think it's just reinforces more than ever what, you know, I learned at university is every source of information has a point of view that it's starting from, you know, and in that classic philosophical way, there is no universal truth. Mm. There's only your interpretation of it. And I think what this plethora of sources has shown shown us is how much that is the case. But it also opens the door to out and out Mm. lies, manipulation Mm. and fake news Mm. because, you know, we want to respect all the different perspectives. But then it starts pushing itself towards not having any grounding in truth or uh, at least in the core facts of the situation. Mm. And actually, it's uh, two thirds is a great number in this section. Um, 64% of us are actually worried that. Um, social media can be used as a fake news weapon. Yep. And so there is a both a liberation and a fear yep. of what that is ultimately. It's freeing, but it comes at a, at a price. Yep. So um, one thing that you, you covered that I thought was fairly interesting as well, and uh, actually I'll come to that next. What I wanted to ask you about first is do we need a skepticism index as well? Because <laughs> you sort of, I like what you said earlier about how um, above a certain point, trust is worrying mm-hmm. so if, if you had over 80 percent mm-hmm. of trust you might be starting to think well does this institution have these people in the palm of the hand mm-hmm. is that safe or not yeah and that very much is a value judgment yeah. right yeah. that comes from my own personal philosophy that if we were all if we had 100 percent trust mm. society would sort of freeze statically yep. and then start to decline mm. um i do think there is a healthy amount of skepticism my from having looked and worked with this data for 19 years, I would say it is around, you want about a quarter of the population being sort of professional skeptics. Mm. If you get Mm. much higher than that, it actually stops, it it itself stops progress Mm. because you can't get anything done. Mm. So it's a really, it's a fine balance. You want, I would say a quarter of the population just, you know, across all demos just checking that what we're doing is the right thing. It's a fascinating number, isn't it? Yeah. The magic and, number of uh, yes, and if, mistrust. If, if I knew what that <laughs> I, I, maybe you've, you've inspired me to think about a new study. But um, uh, that would be my gut because you still want a clear majority yep. pushing the current agenda forward and, and making change happen. And I think why we're so unhappy and distrusting of government in Australia at the moment is things just don't seem to be moving forward. Yes. And even worse, especially the federal government looks like it's looking at itself and not the people it serves. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's such a good point. Um, you know, you talked a bit about your mum earlier. I'll talk a bit about mine. She, she was one of my biggest role models. She's always been a great skeptic. So I think the way I look at things when I see them is, as you said, you know, what is the origin story? What is the source of truth? Who is telling the story? What is their motivation for telling that story? And I, I do think that, you know, I find it fascinating because we live in a world where everyone wants trust. But, you know, it, at a certain point, it's sort of like, do we also want to think about how sceptical we should be about things? You know, you see things like fact check, election watch, and all these things coming up now because people know that they can't really trust a lot of what politicians say. But what is the right way to to sort of look at that and get more accountability in how we make promises and how we say things? Yeah, and I think this is a really interesting topic. We could probably spend 90 minutes talking about this because it fascinates me. I think the the challenge that politicians face is that they often are are approaching a policy or a a new potential policy versus – in a broad context, they've got to put that in amongst 50 other policies, but they present them as single issues. So therefore, when they're presenting their single issue, we're going to spend X billion more on education, for example, you then come up against the population 
who are now only thinking about education and not thinking about the balance of policies, pulling apart that policy, or that's how the politicians come at it. So they defend and try and lock down the policy when the reality is we can't afford everything that we need to do. We have to make difficult choices. We have to prioritize certain points of the population over others. And depending on your viewpoint, you either do that in a much more free market way or you do it by looking after the poorest and um, in society and those who need looking after by the perspective of the party. So ultimately... There is no way to keep all the people happy. There's no way because we all want different things. And I don't think anyone's having that honest conversation, Mm. which I would respect Mm. is like, it's, it's not the school and the hospital Mm. and the tax cuts, you know, and the um, free university. It's some of them, some of bits of all of them, or it's two of them instead of the other. You know, we have choices to make. You Mm. can't have, you can't spend a fortune on all of these things and cut taxes. It's not, it just doesn't work. So how do we help the politicians trust that the public can hold more than one issue in their mind at a time? And I think that's actually a big part of why a lot of us just close our ears to the Mm. politician because they're they're promising something quite narrow and not putting it in context, which really only appeals to the people who that particular issue is the most important issue yeah. to them. Does that maybe sort of tap into some of your looking at general population versus informed public? So one thing that's been really interesting, the data that has fascinated me over time is if we were having this conversation 15 years mm-hmm. ago, which would have been difficult because you'd have still been in nappies, I reckon. <laughs> Not um, quite. <laughs> uh, we would, I would be telling you that the informed public are a leading population, that they tell us what uh, is likely to happen in the general population a few oh, years right. later. Now, uh, I would say that they that gap has closed three or four years ago you can't what you saw in year in the year before tended to happen in the general population the following mm. year now i'm not sure that there's any difference at all if anything yeah. i think the informed public are starting to look a lot more like the everyday population i actually think that the general popular <laughs> so what you might call yeah they may be coming together because people who might be those groups that you would think are the informed public are just choosing to not be informed anymore because maybe they don't trust the exactly and i think it's quite interesting the um we find that the the last two years in particular the curves of everything from the so if you take the informed public and the uh, and everybody else those curves are getting closer and closer together they're not moving in parallel up and down which is what they would have traditionally done they're actually getting closer together which and it's not that the um general population is is moving that much it's that the informed public is moving towards mm. the general population so i would concur with your mm. with your point what do we see as being different, if any difference, between how um, women uh, trust and how men trust and the yes. level of that trust? Well, to all the ladies listening, I don't think it would be a surprise to for them to know that they are less trusting than men. Um, women have a... It's been bubbling in our data and it started to separate a few years ago, but it, this year it became statistically significant. So across our full trust index, uh, women trust 6 percent less or six points rather less than men mm. uh which doesn't sound that much but then when you actually look at it on a chart it actually is quite significant mm. because it means that men are are in the neutral category on several of the institutions but women are in the fully in the distrust category because it's right on the cusp between the two so that's a six point um difference that is statistically significant there's also another very interesting statistical difference in our data which is that um women are less engaged in the media than men so I don't know, you know, correlation, causation and all those challenges. Yeah. I don't know how those two connect, but it could be that there's lower trust in the female population because they're not engaging with news and policy affairs as mm. much, or it might have nothing to do with mm. each other. But there is definitely something that is working better for men in news engagement. Um, I always remember I had a great lecturer at university who talked about how everything in life was designed for a five foot 11 man, uh, you know, yeah. from car seats to yeah. airbags to stool heights, yep. everything. And it made me think more recently, is news and information, is it predominantly written in the patriarchal mm. mindset? Mm. So it's actually written for a male, yeah. well, for, so for I males to science receive. Science and medicine is the same because um, 
my wife is a cardiologist tells me that you know all the um, trials basically up until very recently were all on males so uh, yeah. it's very um, a lot of the a lot of what we know about medical science might not be very useful for our female population yes so I think it's so you know taking that into a social yeah. setting if news is is somehow, built for the male brain mm. not for the female brain mm. that might have something to do with it um and even more so um men are much more likely to amplify their opinion than women in mm. australia which mm. kind of surprised me i don't know why mm. but um 16 of women in our in our data are amplifiers so yep. they are spreading and sharing the things that they see and adding commentary yeah but 24 percent of the men are doing the same mm. so that's quite a lot more um, so not only is uh, are, are women less engaged in just reading, mm. the system of sharing and amplifying is much more male-dominated than female-dominated. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I wonder whether that might be just as a result of the status quo power structures in place that you know, are very male-dominated yeah. yeah. or whether- I th- yeah. I think I don't know I'm a raging feminist, and I think the end, the, the sort of patriarchy is yeah. coming to an end. Yep. And I think what we're seeing in a much more uh, anthropological and psychological way uh, in America and in 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 Europe is we're seeing the death throes of uh, the of of the male, fully male only thought process yep. and generations. Um, but at the moment, those those men who espouse and believe in that are still mm. fundamentally in power because of their age. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. But in five years' time, ten yeah. years' time, they won't be the dominant force, yep. and it'd be very interesting to see if uh, you know my my viewpoint comes to pass. Mm. I wonder when that does happen whether we'll see a lot of the environmental and other other focusing other focused issues such as planet, you know, environment, mm. um, businesses, of course, good will start to elevate more and more and I, I already see pockets of um, companies starting to do more work with the sustainable development goals. Uh, there's I think a hundred of Australia's biggest signed on a few years ago to do something about that. The CEOs mm-hmm. all got together. Um, so you see um, more and more ASX 5200 companies making commitments around the SDGs but I, th- I wonder whether you know trust sort of how it plays into that. None of these companies have to do something like that. This is very much a or do they? I mean, I'll, put, I'll open that up to you. I would say they do. Yeah. Um, just in a pure survival uh, rationale. I really think that whether it's today or in five years' time, for the vast majority of our 40 and below population, being a good corporate citizen, having a strong sustainability mind frame, having a strong purpose vision is table stakes. It's not so much for the uh, 40 plus generation, um, which I sit in myself. So not all of my peers think the same as Mm -hmm. I do, but it doesn't take long in time if all of the 40 and below or 45 and below are holding that opinion for them to be the dominant force in business. And I actually think that's what we started to see already. So your point is true. I see so many more companies getting ahead of government on environment, on social change, on uh, key causes that need to be focused on. And business is pressuring government to 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 move. I mean, the campaign for marriage equality is a classic yeah. example of yeah. that. And I think what that did was it whet the appetite of the Australian public of, hold on, business has agency to move things quicker and government's stuck looking at its own navel. So I now have expectations mm. that business will do that. And this is one of the biggest... This is my favorite single stat we have in the in the whole barometer, which is a business should both look after its purpose and its profits to yep. be successful. 72% of Aussies already believe that. So that's a great, you know, my firm belief is oh, numbers yeah. in the 70s are amazing. This is one I would like to be yep. even higher. Yep. Um, and 79% of us put that agency on the CEO, um, the board of directors and the leadership to make mm. those changes. Mm. And I trust that they should do that before government. And yep. I want them to do that before government. Well, I think they, the sceptic in me will rise to the surface here again. But, <laughs> but I dare say that uh, businesses have more skin in the game when it comes to fulfilling those promises than government. Uh, just because you can vote with your feet with business so easily every day. Mm-hmm. So as, as as X person who wants to, you know, um, choose to go on a holiday with X agency or Y agency, if they're a similar offering and that they usually are these days with, you know, profits and, and sort of 
offering coming to the same point of value. Um, I'm always going to choose the one that does more for purpose and mm. planet. Mm-hmm. And I think I speak for, you know, a huge majority of um, that millennial Gen Z sort of group, but also, you know, the 55 plus as well mm. um, grouping in saying that that's an easy decision to make. So then, then there's a natural squeeze to mm-hmm. do something, whereas government, you know, every three or four years will mm-hmm. rock up and will vote and, you know. Oh, I, I totally agree. Yeah. It's a commercial incentive yep. because we will – I genuinely think more and more of us will abandon brands that don't have a clear sense of purpose, yeah. a clear sense of values that align with our own. Mm. Not that we all have the same values, mm. of course. So there's there's room for multiple brands, multiple opportunities. But especially when it comes down to a fundamentally undifferentiable good service yeah. or product, mm. what are you making your decision on? Yeah. You're either making it on price mm. or you're making it on values. Yep. And I think we've we're at a tipping point where price alone mm. isn't the only thing yeah. for a big part of the population that's still super important yeah but as soon as the price comes relatively close mm. if we have the awareness mm. we will make a choice based on purpose and values yes we had a guy on the podcast recently aaron march who is beat cancer they make headphones for very cheap costs that support cancer all the mm-hmm. profits going towards supporting cancer so he called it um Profit differentiation theory, which I think is interesting. We care more and more about where we care more about uh, where the the the, uh, the inputs go than we, we ever did previously. Uh, so that's a fascinating one for me. And sort of how does that evolve and shape our conscious economy? I think. I mean, this one's hard to answer in the terms of our data. Yeah, but I do know that purpose-driven brands. It's actually not in the trust data. We do a second piece of research called uh, Earned Brand, which is about brand choices and brand differentiation. Um, And that is where we really see that when we know the supply chain impacts, the the true purpose of what the brand's trying to achieve, how it allies itself to a cause or not, depending on what the brand or product or service is, the millennial and the Gen Z population are much more likely to purchase the brand that they can clearly mm. identify that's doing that versus one mm. that isn't, even if there's a price premium on that product. Yep. Because I think the great fortune of anyone under 50 in this country mm. is that they've never experienced a recession. Mm. Very few of them have experienced really tough times econ- economically if you've um, had a job. And yeah. Obviously, there is a, there's always a challenge of those who are long-term unemployed. But people aren't short of opportunities. Mm. They can move on and they can make choices. And that has kind of infected uh, our mentality in a Mm. positive way of um, price not being the only thing I should be concerned about. Having come from a country that seemed to have a recession every 10 years when I was growing (laughs) up, um, we really, you are much more price focused throughout a much broader swathe of the population when Mm. you don't even know if you're going to have a job the next day, no matter what strata of type of job you've got. Mm. Let's pivot a little bit, and I just want to ask you a bit about you and sort of, you know, you've got a very busy job. Uh, how do you um, unwind, make sure that you're the best you, you can be? I'm an absolute lover of uh, the Aussie bush, and so it's all about walks and really getting back to nature to try and recharge the batteries. Um, I am a bit of a hippie in the sense that if – no, there's nothing happier than me sitting on a rock and just taking in the taking in the world, mm. and that really recharges my my batteries. Everyone at, at the office always jokes that I know more about Australia, and I've been to more bits of Australia than most Australians, mm. and I find it an absolute privilege to be mm. in a country that has so much nature nearby. You know, when you live in Europe and it's a concrete jungle and you have to drive <laughs> for a long, long time to see a tree, uh, you really recognise uh, the the benefits of living here in Australia from a nature point of view. I'm a huge um as you already know mm. I, I i have a good way with animals mm. um but i particularly in uh, have i like to you know see those aussie icons in the wild oh that's awesome and so given all that you know they say knowledge it can sometimes be too much power but you, you, know, you know a lot about the different institutions and i asked you earlier about you know how do you stay up to date with news and how do you you know learn uh what are your favorite mediums for that and 
So I think I'm very lucky in the fact that I learn a huge amount on the job every day. I get to be stimulated by amazing clients, colleagues, and people I come across in everyday life. So I really try and focus um, not so much on the the topics that interest me. I get to be stimulated by that. I really focus. It's really strange. When I was younger, I kind of was interested in psychology, but I rejected going down that route because my mum was a psychologist. What a stupid teenage thing (laughs) to do. But now I really find in my mid-40s that I've come back to, the thing I really want to understand is people, motivations, how we make decisions, why we make decisions, Mm. why we're scared of change. Um, I've got very interested in how people... Um, sort of push their issues onto others and how do you understand that and you know what what do we do in a world full of you know crazy narcissists like Mm. Donald Trump how Mm. do you how do you get positive change in a world where sometimes people are actually quite scared of Mm. that change and I don't think that's about winning a rational argument that's about understanding people Mm. so I think the thing that I really spend time in is in the psychology of individuals and then in sort of the anthropological ramifications of what that looks like in culture and community. What are you most excited about that you're working on at the moment or about to work on at Edelman? Oh, that's a great question. I am real. I have a couple of clients that I think are genuinely on the precipice of doing something bold and brave and stuff that would not be allowed to have been done two or three years ago because boards or shareholders mm. would have been terrified. But the reality that we live in post Hain commission post, well, there's what, how many commissions have we got going on at the moment? There's a lot of Royal commissions. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So there's so much going on that is, that his unearthing some of the less um, attractive sides of business and society but you only can change things if you can uncover them. And I think that is going to lead my optimistic hope is that's going to lead to some real corporate bravery um, that I would really, you know, I really hope to be a part of. That's awesome. So how can people um, learn more about your work and connect with you? So, um, they can visit our website, edelman.com.au. There's a little pack of trust information on there just to start them on their on their journey. Uh, if not, you can always find me uh, on LinkedIn or on email, uh, Stephen Spur, and I would be more than happy to answer any queries. I am very happy as well for students who are in this space to come in and spend some time with the team. I think that's a really good way for them to understand how we're putting trust in, into effect. Uh, obviously, we can't have thousands, but if if it works out, we it's nice to have some students who are studying trust, purpose to come in and join us. And also, we learn a huge amount yeah. um, in, in return. So uh, just get in touch. I'd be more than, ha- more than happy to help and more than happy to have a conversation. And I've got a great team who will do the same. Terrific. Well, thanks so much for dropping in. That's my absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player. Why not share the podcast with a friend? You could also leave us a five-star review in your podcast player. You may also want to join us for one of our regular live podcasts or to become a show sponsor. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook.